Hi, and welcome to the Leaders Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this episode, I was honored to sit down with two giants in healthcare and policy, both former Secretaries of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, who served under President Donald Trump, and Donna Shalala, who served under President Bill Clinton. In a very lively discussion, we cover interoperability of electronic health records, creating guaranteed markets for life-saving drugs, whether there will ever be an end to fee-for-service, and what now for the ACA. Tune in. Let's start with um, interoperability yeah. a little bit. Yeah, so you, you've all, been yeah. working on that yeah. you know, for mm-hmm. a long time. I used to work for a hospital association, safety net hospitals, who were trying to implement mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. It was very challenging for them. They were never on time meeting any of the standards. So. I, I know it's moved forward some, but can you just talk a little bit about how to how we really get hospitals, you know, and and providers through true interoperability? Well, so it's moved forward a lot. So what the progression was, Mike Levitt started us on that journey um, and said he commit he he wanted to bring a convening of all the players together um, and likened it to building a national railroad system. You need to figure out what the one gauge is, or you end up like Australia, where they have two different gauges of railway. They actually they literally have to transfer goods because they never developed that. Um, what's the gauge? And so that interoperability tried to get going. Um, that was less of a priority in the Obama administration with the stimulus monies. Mm-hmm. They funded a lot in terms of adoption. Right. And so what happened was you got the electrification of health records, but then balkanization. So it was a big advance because you got people thinking electronically. So let me give you an example. The (laughs) University of Miami Hospital is right next to the great public hospital, Jackson Memorial. Yep. They picked two different systems. Right. And they should have been systems that could have connected, but they they weren't. Right. Um, And so what I did was, now we're going to make it so they will connect. So that's the interoperability and information blocking standards. And I think one of our big accomplishments was we were able to get the major... EHR vendors mm-hmm. to effectively agree to that regulatory framework. Um, personal ownership of information, interoperability, no balkanization, and so there are timelines for implementation. It'll take time for that to happen, yeah. but I think we're on that path now. Mm-hmm. We actually will get to where where, where you will she can show up at any provider and they should be able to get the core elements, the core data elements of your records. The big government challenge was between the Defense Department and the VA. Yeah. Because the Defense Department, when someone retired, couldn't get the records over. Right. They had to carry them over. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've had the, I've told, told this, I've had the experience where I've been a, an inpatient at a hospital, an outpatient at their, um, uh, at a, at a phys- primary care doctor, um, and going to their CAT scan group. And at every single place, because they all three were on different medical record systems within the same integrated provider, had to go through my medical history, my medications. I literally got discharged from the hospital, went to get a CAT scan, and and they did not have in the system the very meds I had been given on discharge because they were on different platforms right. within the same within system. Within the same system. <laughs> Do you all feel that sort of the push by the big... Um, the stand, by the big tech uh, like Apple and those for the fire, you know, mm-hmm. to find the, is yeah. that helping? How- it is. It is. So the, the, and those are the standards that we put as part of the interoperability yeah. of those. And this is beyond my technical 
But but those those fire standards, just whatever the platforms that make it so that the technical people know how to create that that integration yeah. is what needs to happen. Yeah. So we're we're on the right track now. We just got to keep on the train. I think we just need to go forward with implementation, and how, the Biden administration needs to enforce. That. However, the effort by a bunch of those companies to try to develop a healthcare system. Yes. Is is they found out how complex <laughs> the system was and what the multiple cultures yeah. were within the system. So in interoperability, you don't have to worry as much about culture as you have to worry about the technology to be able to do it. Right. Right. And, and we, what we had to do was we had to make sure we respected that within those EHRs, there is intellectual property. There are algorithms exactly. and there's important sort of intel inside right. beyond just the information. And that was really part of what we tried to do in the final rules was how do you respect yeah. what's sort of trade secret slash intellectual property, but still allow the patient's information to move with to them. To transfer, right. Yeah. Do you all worry about cyber in 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 this? I mean, it's yeah, absolutely. It's I mean, is there any any thoughts around solutions there, or sort of more regulation, more government models? Did I stump you all? You run, no, she's running. You run a health system. So how do you how do you think about how? I I I think in fear. You think yeah. in fear? Yeah. It's probably the first, I mean, for any health, for any healthcare company that has health records, uh, it's, it rightly is right at the top of the board of directors list of um, enterprise risk management items. And that's, that is probably more than government regulation. The most important thing that can happen is just that level of focus. Um, yeah. And the problem is it's, it gets down to the level of just like fishing training of your employees. Right. It really gets, it gets to that kind of level because you, because you can't airlock your system or then they're not interoperable by definition. Exactly, exactly. All right, um, value-based payments. Um, you guys talked about a, a decent amount up there. Um, I have been interested in this, uh, moving completely away from fee-for-service for a long time. I've been studying it and looking at it. So it looks like in the public payer, Medicare, there's, there's been a lot of movement, but how do we push this forward in the employer? sponsored system? What what can employers do to to really get some of that, you know, risk transferred over to the provider side? So well, employers have been playing around with ideas for a long time, and a number of the big employers have tried to do this. Um, they usually need help, and that's why they go to the Aetnas mm -hmm. and, and the big insurance companies to help them uh, manage it so they're self-employed, uh, they're self-funded, but but they go to United or to Aetna or to one of the big companies to try to get that value mm -hmm. uh, system going. Letting the patient have more choice. Most patients don't want more choice. They want a simple, straightforward system with a card that they uh, can go in for. But I think that Businesses have had a lot of experience in this area, and they've tried different things. Mostly, they've been able to slow down their costs. Mm -hmm. I, I think you've seen advances. For instance, Medicare Advantage with, with commercial payers, especially in Florida, yeah. I think over 80% uh, are, in, are, are in alternative payment arrangements. So mm -hmm. they've been able to figure out there with providers alternative payment systems. Uh, a lot of employers and health plans are probably too small to engage in the transactions costs to set these up, or they don't have the leverage. But with, the big with, employers have been able yeah, to do it. They don't have right. the leverage with the providers who say, we'll take our fee for service, thank you very much, because yeah. they have so much power. That's where Medicare 
um, can be a guide by basically with such with such pervasive market power, 40 to 50% of every market across the United States, that's where Medicare can really, as the dominant payer, make changes that r ripple through the system. I mean, how many hospital contracts for private insurers right now say, we'll pay 150% of Medicare fee-for-service? Yeah, in It's fact, a one-page contract. They, I, have, they free write off of Medicare. So if Medicare fixes it, then it, will it can ripple through. I sat on the board of one of the major insurance companies, uh, health insurance companies, their prices were dictated not by their own analysis, but by Medicare. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Most, most provider contracts are simply a percent of Medicare fee-for-service. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think we will ever get completely away from fee-for-service? Uh, I do, actually. I, do. I think we're moving in that direction. Now, it's going to be a hybrid mm -hmm. um, because they're going to look at the prices of individual services. but. Um, I actually think this Medicare Advantage movement, as long as we yeah. keep the money in it mm -hmm. and keep yeah. it attractive right. and don't try to finance other things out of the overpayment, what I would describe as the overpayment of Medicare Advantage, uh, we're going to get more reforms there. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Okay. Let's talk about patient engagement. Um, so let's say we get people all the data, it's clear, they can understand it. I am a little bit of a cynic like you and don't know that people will then use it, use it to make or different choices. they choice. can use it. So how do that we... their employer will allow them to go shopping around as opposed to going to one place that they have a contract with. Do you think there's ever a going to be a place for, so employers now use sort of the carrot, right? The, it's for, for people to make good decisions. Are we ever going to get to the stick? Yeah, so let me, I do not actually believe, one of the, one of the false impressions of trying to put the patient at the center of healthcare is this notion of casting the patient off as an atomized individual to study data and have to make choices like that. That is not actually the vision that I articulated was working towards. What I wanted to do was to empower the patient to be at the center, but with the helping hand of an incentive-aligned physician. Because as Secretary Shalala said, um, people, they, I think they want choice, but actually people will do what their doctors recommend most of the time. Mm -hmm. If the doc, if their practice, whether it's primary care or otherwise, has an aligned incentive, that's why I believe in total cost of care, the aligned incentive of managing cost of care in a quality way, keeping them out of the hospital, mm -hmm. out of the nursing home, um, they will generally go where they're guided by their physician. And so that helping hand. And so right there, you're, you're, you're putting a learned intermediary in there helping and with, and with financial incentives to actually study. And you know, there are just a core, couple of core areas that are most of healthcare spending. It's going to an orthopedic surgeon. It's going to the, it's going to the highest quality, lowest cost orthopedic surgeon, highest quality, lowest cost diagnostics. Um, ophthalmology can be another key area. Cardio can be another key area, okay? So those, those are some areas where these practices can build relationships and networks of referral that are built on transparency and those aligned incentives. The patient doesn't have to be sitting there shopping, okay? Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to be going to Google or an Amazon tool to shop. Now, there are a small number of consumers who are rabid shoppers, and you see this in every space. Um, you see that with grocery shopping, not to compare grocery shopping to healthcare, but you see it in terms of consumer behavior that to drive and create efficient marketplaces of pricing with transparent information, a very small number of patients are sort of thought leaders 
that are very informed and drive, and the rest of us, the other 90, 98% of us, sort of get to free ride off of their work. But they have, they have to have an insurance plan that allows them to do that. Yeah, and right? that's where I think the plans, I think, I think the employer clients mm -hmm. and the plans, once this information is more available and they get to see it, they will start developing benefit packages that whether carrot or stick mm -hmm. create. At some point, a plan and an employer are not going to want are not going to want you to go to a forty thousand dollar hip replacement that is lower quality than a ten thousand dollar hip replacement. Yeah, and the Medicare Advantage <laughs> plans. Um, I could take you to uh, Miami to Lyon, mm -hmm. uh, which has all Cuban clients uses Medicare Advantage. They negotiate deep discounts yeah. for services with the hospitals. This can be done. Yeah. Do you think, you mentioned this up there, is Medicare Advantage going to take over Medicare? Yes. Is that, that, yes. So we wrote about Medicare Advantage a couple years ago because I, I didn't hear anybody the talking about it. The is that it'll be over 50% by 2030 by the CBO. I think it's moving faster than that. Yeah. Should employer plans be incorporating it more as options? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If they, they want to contain costs. Yeah. And if mm -hmm. they want their employees to be happy, happy, happy. Mm -hmm. and if they want to not have to cover dental and on separate plans, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. they can pick one that's more comprehensive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, just a couple more. Um, I want to talk about drugs for a second. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the cost, but you mentioned briefly um, about incentivizing drug companies, you know, to work on vaccines or yeah, by guaranteeing markets, right? By guaranteeing markets. So we we looked a, a year or so ago about antibiotic resistance yeah. and and this huge and that nobody's right. really talking about, um, and it was very scary. And one of the things we we found in our interviewing was that there weren't incentives, you know, drug companies weren't really incentivized to make more antibiotics. Exactly. Right. In fact, in fact, it's it's the opposite. And this this if I had had a second bite of the apple, this was going to be something I really focused on, which is you have the same market failure that you have with vaccines in antibiotic resistance. Because effectively what we need is for a drug company, drug companies to develop antibiotics that then sit on the shelf. Mm -hmm. Because if they develop a next generation antibiotic and it gets overused, you've just blown it again. You need to hold it in reserve. So that's basically a role for government there in making a market, buying it up, just like we do for pandemic flu supplies, just like with COVID vaccine. And for um, children's, children's vaccines. vaccines. Because that's what the problem you have to solve. Mm -hmm. yeah. now, now this gets the government making markets in with its priorities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think COVID has moved us beyond, we've always uh, guaranteed a market for specific things, whether it was AIDS or, or other things. But the COVID thing moved us so dramatically into a relationship with the major drug companies that it may define the future on a set of things like like the antibacterial. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think I mean it was it was in part because of having someone with my background there that we were able to exactly. break through I think traditional Republican notions of not interfering in the private sector um, because I assess these as economic problems. Mm -hmm. And where there's a market failure, there's a role for government solving that. We saw this in 2005 when I worked with Secretary Levitt and President Bush to create the pandemic flu plan. 
we actually, it was a mini Manhattan project, just the same, which was we had just had the Chiron manufacturing failure in, in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. Remember, we had a shortage in 2004 of flu vaccine. We needed more domestic manufacturing, more egg-based production, exactly. and we needed to convert the industry to cell-based production, and we needed to create a guaranteed reserve so they would produce enough each year so we had surplus capacity to run a second pandemic flu strain run in our system. That wasn't going to happen just relying on market forces. We had to basically fund that, and that was President Bush's pandemic flu plan, which was really industrial engineering on a small scale that then I took in warp speed and just blew that out, a very similar concept, though, of this public-private partnership. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But one of the uh, companies didn't take the money. Oh, uh, you're talking Pfizer? Yeah. Well, no, Pfizer did take the money because they took a $2 billion guarantee. Yes, we would, we they would, did it the other way. We, yeah, I would work with companies, whatever whatever solved their leadership's risk aversion so they didn't challenges. Have a, so they mm -hmm. didn't have a cash flow right, problem. Right. They needed the guarantee yeah. of the market. Yeah, Pfizer didn't need the capital, the working right. capital or capital to do it. But they needed to know that if this went away, I still was on the hook to buy $2 billion worth of vaccine. Right. Now, the question is, <laughs> the question is whether the approach in the future will be the guarantee of market, whether that'll be yeah. more bipartisan because yeah. Republicans will not have Alex Azar sitting there, right. or whether you'll have to fund up front the cash flow for the development. In my view, is I, I took them where they were solve their problem mm -hmm. okay if you don't need funding to build a factory then fine i'll you need a guarantee purchase fine i think you need to meet these entities where they are and solve their economic problems that's the importance that's of understanding the culture the, uh -huh. of the industry uh -huh. that's a really good point um i mean we have it's a similar issue frankly with the strategic national stockpile and distribution uh -huh. um so for instance i i believe what we need is to basically fund the strategic stockpile, if we really want a stockpile that's about the ability to supply pandemic supplies as a surge for the whole country, which is not what, when actually, I think you started the National Pharmaceutical Stockpile, didn't yeah. you? So when, when Secretary Shalala started, it was called the National Pharmaceutical Stockpile, which is you keep some of these bioterrorism chemical countermeasures in secret locations that only the government would buy, like anthrax vaccine. Mm -hmm. okay? um, that got bigger as we got more countermeasures. We had some things like N95 respirators and field medical shelters, hospital units, as surge for if we had a hurricane or tornado or a nuclear event in a localized area. It was never meant to replace the whole distribution no, system. No. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, is the solution that you just put in these secret warehouses massive amounts of supplies that will go, that will expire? Mm. The other idea, this was strategic stockpile 2.0 that I was trying to put forward, is you, we have a very developed wholesale distribution system, but it runs on very efficient just-in-time inventory. Do we solve their business problem? There is a number at which we can financially pay for their working capital needs to hold excess inventory beyond what's economically rational see, see and what, have them do that. What I would have done is taken the VA hospitals and actually give them the storage capacity and let them use the supplies and therefore you'd have them up to date, mm -hmm. but give them, they would have had the storage capacity, but they would have kept using it, then you would have just kept filling in. Mm -hmm. so it wouldn't be expiring. Whereas for me, I'd, I'd, instead of that, I would just say to the McKesson's, Amerisources, et cetera, of the wholesale distribution system, we will pay you for vendor-managed inventory to keep afloat 
excess beyond what's economically rational for you. And see, I would have given the float to the VA mm-hmm. and to the maybe to the military hospitals too, but I would have used the government hospitals as the with a float. And, and hence you see the difference between Democrat and Republican. <laughs> <laughs> but we would have gone in the same direction. But you would have solved exactly. it. <laughs> we would have solved the problem. So do you think there's will to or in, you know, are they thinking about this currently in the minute? Do you think they'll be working on this? On which issue? On the stockpile? this on yes. the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's yes. actually in the current infrastructure bill, but I think it goes more it goes it actually goes more in the old style direction of just adding more to warehouses, I believe, with domestic production where they'll pay a supplement for domestic. I think that's where it is at the moment. Mm-hmm. So the appropriations, the appropriators are very interested in this. But the overall strategy is being worked on by um, the people in the White House, the COVID people, and uh, the people at HHS. But right now they're doing some temporary fixes. Here's what worries me about pandemic or other kinds of emergency stockpiles is during and in the aftermath of an emergency, you have a lot of bipartisan consensus to fund things. Right. Five years from now, um, when it becomes a choice of low-income heating funding for an appropriator versus N95 respirators sitting in a warehouse, and there's a limit of money. Yeah. I just don't think we're ever going to be completely through the pandemic, and I actually think that the bipartisan consensus is going to continue but we need a structure that we've agreed upon. She's more optimistic than I am. Well, fun, she just funding. said the pandemic's Long never going to end. <laughs> well, but on the funding issues, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I think they're very fickle. I watch the appropriators. Well, and you mentioned that in there, that they, yeah. you know, they're always really able to work on stuff and, yeah. and get it done. Yeah. And now the share of appropriations in the House has always had the HHS portfolio. So she understands a lot of these issues. Is there political will to make the fixes to the ACA on both sides of the aisle that would just make it finally like the complete, really useful well, it law that some it could of the changes, be? Because they put some of the subsidies in right. already. Uh, whether reconciliation will do any more, they're going to do some things in the appropriations as well. They're going to eat away at this. Eat away at it. Yeah. And, and they've got to figure out some incentive to get states like Florida to expand their Medicaid program. Right. So they're going to offer them again 100%, but I don't think the governor is going to do it. No. I, I think a lot of Republicans, so in the past, some of the fixes that would have made a lot of sense, like moving community rating from 3 to 1 to 5 to 1 to create a more rational pricing structure mm-hmm. to right. incentivize people in, um, those changes that, Repub- that Republicans would have supported as kind of rifle shot fixes, mm-hmm couldn't be done because it violated the notion of repeal and replace exactly. as a whole. So I think it, the question now becomes, can those fixes happen, or is the Democratic price tag of what the Christmas tree of what gets added unpalatable to Republicans? So that, that just becomes a negotiation of can you count to 60? Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it has to be done in appropriations. Yep. That was Alex Azar and Donna Shalala. I hope you enjoyed it. Find the rest of our series at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or leadersedge.com. Mm-hmm.